Good afternoon, everybody. Um, I'm truly delighted to be here, as you all obviously are, and it's really nice to see such a, a large and busy theatre. Um, my name is Philippa Cochran, um, and on behalf of the Edinburgh International Book Festival, I'd like to welcome you here this afternoon for this event with Michael Mopergo. I was lucky enough to be one of the people who went out on tour with Michael earlier this year in um, a very small yellow van all around the Western Isles. We got to know each other quite well over two weeks, um, and I'm hoping you're all going to enjoy the event this afternoon as much as I enjoyed every single event that I saw over those two weeks, and we worked very hard. So, Michael, as you know, has written, it's now over 100 books. It was 100 books the last time we were out, but I believe it's now over 100 books. Um, and has his last book, Private Peaceful, has been nominated for many prizes and earlier this year won the Children's Book Award. Um, yes. That's quite impressive, really. So, if you could all join me in giving a very, very warm welcome to Michael Morpurgo, the Children's Laureate. Thank you very much. Um, when I go to schools, which I often do, and when I talk to young people, which I like doing, a question that seems to come to their mind, and I think it comes to everyone's mind who maybe has looked at a blank piece of paper and tried to write a story, is where do you start from? How do you get going? I don't know the answer to those questions, but what I do know is that I can tell you with individual books how they began. The problem is that never solves the problem of the next one. So you're still left with this imponderable, how are you going to begin? One thing I'm absolutely sure of is the requirement for a writer is to live a really interested and interesting existence. And I'm really lucky that I've done that all my life. It's not always been pleasant. No life is always pleasant. But it's always been full of events full of extraordinary people, and what's what I want to talk about today, full of places. And it's places almost above people that seem to spark with me the idea of a tale. Now, sometimes these places are imagined. I've never been there any more than you would have been, because they don't exist. Or they are absolutely real, places that I can still smell. I'm talking about my school laboratories here. The adults in the audience will know from what I've just said that every single one of them can remember the smell of their school. It stays with you forever. And it's just one little, one little incident, really, one little impression which stays with you, which gives you, later on, it's that richness of experience from which you can grow a story. And I'm going to start not with those real things, but with completely imagined places. And the first thing I'm going to, to be reading to you and talking to you about is Camelot. And I've never been there. I've seen it on films, but I've never been there. I've read about it in poems. I've never been there, because, of course, you can't. But I was asked not long ago to do... That's not true. I asked the publisher not long ago if I could do a retelling of one of my favorite, favorite stories in all the world, which is called Gawain and the Green Knight. Put your hands up if you know this story anyway. Okay, you can leave then. 
But what's really wonderful is this is an ancient, ancient poem. We don't know who wrote it, but we do know it is this wonderful story. It's probably 800 years old, this poem. And I had the opportunity, which I've always wanted to have, to retell it in a landscape, in a place that I could only imagine. But here's the lovely thing. Because there was the poem, it helped me hugely to be there. It's so well written. It draws you in so, so easily that I thought, yes, I can do this. And I've retold it. It's been illustrated by a man called Michael Foreman, who you won't have heard of. He's an unknown little illustrator. But he's done the most wonderful job on this. The cover is just terrific. It's not out yet. I'm not selling you anything. Don't sit there like that. I promise you I'm not selling. You can't get it. So what I'm going to do is just read you the beginning of it. It's an imagined place. Here it is. I don't think I've read this before at a big event like this. I've read it to my wife in bed, but that is about all. Actually, it's a very sexy story. I have to tell you that. I shouldn't say that with children here, but it's a really, really sexy story. But you're allowed to put sex in a children's book, providing it's Arthurian. I'll just tell you the beginning of it. Think yourself back in years, my friend. Not as far as ancient Greece. And there was great grief and suffering and terrible hunger too. Then, as the myth goes, and whether it is the myth of story or the myth of history is for you to decide. Then there came a king who would lead the people of Britain out of the darkness of their misery and into the sunlight at last. His name was Arthur. Never had there been a braver, more noble king than this. Saved at birth, hidden away, then plucked from obscurity and chosen to be high king by the magical powers of Merlin, he drew the sword from the famous stone and not long afterwards gathered about him at Camelot all those great knights who had goodness at heart, who shunned all greed and pride, the finest and fiercest knights in the kingdom who fought only for right and the well-being of others and of their kingdom. You know their names as well as I do from stories that have come down to us through the ages. Sir Lancelot, Sir Percival, Sir Galahad, Sir Tristram, dozens of them, too many to be listed here, and Sir Gawain, of course, who was the High King's nephew. My story is of Gawain. Of all the tales of the Knights of the Round Table, his is the most magical and the one I most love to tell. For Gawain, as you will shortly see, was as honest and true as a knight of the round table should be, as kind, as chivalrous, and courteous, as brave as any other, and stronger in battle than any except Lancelot. But Gawain was headstrong too, and more than a little vain. And as this story will show, sometimes not as honest or true as he would want himself to have been, much like many of us, I think. 
so to his story, the story of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. It was Christmas time at Camelot, that time of the year when all King Arthur's knights gathered to celebrate the birth of their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. For 15 joyous days after Holy Mass each morning, there was nothing but feasting and dancing and singing and hunting and jousting too. Jousting was the favorite sport, each of them striving to unseat the mighty Sir Lancelot, but rarely succeeding, of course. And all was done in fun, in a spirit of great comradeship, for they were happy to be all together once more at this blessed time. During the year, these lords were so often parted from one another and from their ladies as they rode out through the kingdom on their dangerous missions. So this was a time when love and friendship was renewed, a time to celebrate with their young king all their achievements and their great and good purpose to bring peace to the land and make of it a kingdom as near to a heaven on earth as had never before been achieved in Britain or any other land come to that. On New Year's Eve, after evening mass had been said in the chapel and generous New Year's gifts exchanged, the High King and Guinevere, his queen, came at last into the great hall where all the lords and ladies were waiting to dine. No one could begin the feasting until they came, of course, so as you can imagine, they cheered them to the rafters when they saw them. Guinevere had never looked so gloriously beautiful as she did that evening, and there were gasps of admiration from around the hall, from lords and ladies alike. With Arthur on one side of her and Gawain on the other, Guinevere sat down at the high table, which was set on a splendid dais, draped all about with silk and richly hung with the finest tapestries from Toulouse and Turkestan. Then, with drummers drumming and pipers piping, the servants came in, carrying the food on great silver plates, piling each table high with roasted meat, capons and venison and pork, and fish fresh baked in sea salt and baskets of crusty bread and steaming soups. Truly, there was enough to feed the 5,000, though there were only 500 there to eat it. As they poured out the wine and the ale, filling every goblet to the brim, the sense of the feast that lay before them filled the succulent air and their nostrils too, so that their appetites whetted, they were all longing now to begin. But the high king and his queen sat there, not touching their food nor their drink either. Everyone knew that if they did not begin, then out of respect, nor could anyone else. And everyone knew also why it was that the king was refusing to let the feast begin. The great hall fell silent as Arthur rose to his feet. You know the custom, he began, I will not take one mouthful nor one sip of wine until I am told of some new and stirring tales, some wonderfully outlandish adventure, some extraordinary feat of arms so far unheard of. And it must be true, too. I don't want you to go making it up just so you can get at the food. Some of you are good at the tall stories. They laughed at that. But as they looked around, it became clear that none of them had a tale to tell. What? cried the High King. What, what not one of you? Well, then I see we must all go hungry. It's such a pity. Isn't it strange? How food you cannot eat always smells so wonderful. It needn't be a story, of course. It could be some new happening, some weird and wondrous event. If I can't have a story, then you'd better hope, as I do, that maybe some stranger will come striding in here right now and challenge us face to face. That would do. I'd be happy with that. Then we could all begin our feasting before the food gets cold. And with that, he sat down. At that very same moment, just as the High King had finished speaking, they heard a sudden roaring of wind, the rattle of doors and windows shaking, and then outside the clatter of horses' hooves on stone. 
The great doors burst open, and into the hall rode the most awesome stranger anyone there had ever set eyes on. For a start, he was a giant of a man, taller by two heads than any knight there, but not, not lanky and long, not at all. No, shoulder to shoulder, he was as broad as any three men stood side by side, and his legs were massive like tree trunks they were. And you could see the man's arms were about as thick and strong as his legs, but, but that wasn't all. This giant was green, green from head to toe. Yes, bright green, I tell you, as green as beech leaves in summer when the sun shines through. And when I say this man was green, I don't just mean his clothes, I mean him, his face. Green, his hands, green, the hair that hung down to his shoulders, green. Only his eyes, horror of horrors, glowed red, blood red, and glaring from under his heavy eyebrows, which were as green as the rest of him. Everyone in that hall simply gaped at him, at his hugeness, and his greenness, at his grimness too, for the man had a thunderous scowl on his face that struck terror into every heart. Mustn't he have been a wonderful poet, this man? It's a shame we don't know his name, so you just have to do with more poetry. It's my poem now. Um, Kensky's Kingdom. Who's read it? Hands up, hands up. Stand up, stand up, those who've read it. I want all those sitting down to give them a clap. <laughs> louder, louder, louder! Sit down. And all those who haven't read it, now stand up. Up, 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 come on. All those sitting down, now say after me, boom. Sit down. Kensky's kingdom also sat in an, set in an imaginary landscape. It's set on an island in the Pacific. I've never been to an island in the Pacific. I've been to the island of Skye. I've been to the Scilly Isles. I've even been to the Isle of Wight. But I've never been to the Pacific. So I had to imagine this place. For those of you who don't know the story, shame upon you, it is a story I wrote, as usual. It's really bad, this talk. I'm off. <laughs> it's a story I wrote because I got a letter from a boy like you, only much nicer. This fellow wrote me a really nice letter. You haven't wrote me a letter, have you? No, you haven't. Well, you should have done. This man wrote me a letter. This boy wrote me a letter which said, Dear Mr. Morpingo, I have just read your... Oh, they never spell it right. They never spell it right. Dear Mr. Morpingo, I have just read your book, The Wreck of the Zanzibar. He writes, It is the best book I have ever read. I love letters like that. He goes on to say, oh good. He goes on to say, it is even better than all the Harry Potter books put together. I love letters like that. But the next paragraph began with this awful word, but, but, he says, there's one thing seriously wrong with this book. It is about a girl. I don't like books about 
girls as much as I like books about boys, will you please write me a novel about a boy who gets stuck on a desert island? So I thought, yes. I asked my wife, who is my first critic, what do you think of this idea? And she said, it's a really silly idea. I said, why? And she said, because, Michael, it's sort of been done before. There's this fellow called Robinson Crusoe. Have you heard of him by some obscure author? And I said, yes, so? She said, have you not heard of Lord of the Flies by another obscure author? I said, yes, so? And I determined I would do it. And I finally, finally met a man who'd sailed around the world on a yacht. And I thought to myself, I'm going to have you be on the boat. I'm going to call you Michael because it's a name I like. You're going to fall off the boat with your dog, swim, 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 and you're going to find yourself on an island in the Pacific. I thought, you've done it, Michael, but it's boring to be on an island. I mean, fancy you on an island for an entire book with nothing much to do. It's not good, is it? So what was really lucky is that I'd also cut out of a newspaper a story about a Japanese soldier left behind on an island after the Second World War. And it was his obituary in the New York Times. And I thought, interesting, I'm going to put a Japanese soldier on the same island as a boy your age from this period. So you've got an ancient Japanese warrior from another time and a modern boy from today. Well, what's going to happen is this. A Japanese soldier doesn't want anyone to come to his island. It's his place. He's like Robinson Crusoe. Keep away, keep away. But you, you want to go home. Watch EastEnders. So what you want to do is to light a fire to attract the ship. He doesn't want anyone to come. And I thought, I thought, I thought, great, I've got a sort of a story. But here's my problem. I come back to it. The place. I've never been to a desert island. So I met someone, deliberately, who had, who had spent a fortnight living on an island. And I said, what was it like all alone on a, an island? She said, dreadful. She said, the flies never stopped getting at you. What did you eat? I said, I found out all sorts of things from you. So I then, I can be there, I thought. I can be there. And I invented this landscape. And here's the moment where the boy sits up on a beach. He's just fallen off the yacht, haven't you? Nod your head. Yes, fallen off the yacht. Swim, swim, swim. And you're on this island. And this is what the island looks like. This is the place I imagined and invented. dog, by the way, in this book, is called Stella. In fact, it's called Stella Artois, but that's another story. Someone was bending over me, shaking me, talking to me. I could not understand a word that was being said, but it didn't matter. I felt Stella's hot breath on my face, her tongue licking my ear. She was safe. I was safe. All was well. I was woken by a howling, like the howling of a gale through the masts. I looked about me. There were no masts above me. There were no sails, no movement under me either, no breath of wind. Stella Artois was barking, but some way off. I was not on a boat at all, but lying straight out on sand. The howling became a screaming, a fearful crescendo of screeching that died away in its own echo. I sat up. I was on a beach, a broad white sweep of sand with trees growing thick and lush behind me right down to the beach. Then I saw Stella prancing about in the shallows. I, I called her, and she came bounding up out of the sea to greet me, her tail circling wildly. When all the leaping and licking and hugging were done, I, I struggled to my feet. 
I was weak all over. I looked all about me. The wide blue sea was as empty as the cloudless sky above. No Peggy Sue, no boat, nothing, no one. I called again and again for my mother and father. I called until the tears came and I could call no more until I, I knew there was no point. I stood there for some time trying to work how I had got here, how it was I'd survived. I had such confused memories of being picked up, of being on board, the, on board the Peggy Sue, but I knew now I couldn't have been. I must have dreamed it, dreamt the whole thing. I must have clung to my football and kept myself afloat until I was washed up. I thought of my football then, but it was nowhere to be seen. Stella, of course, was unconcerned about all the whys and wherefores. She kept bringing me sticks to throw and would go galloping after them into the sea without a care in the world. Then came the howling again from the trees and the hackles went up on Stella's neck. She charged up the beach, barking and barking until she was sure she had silenced the last of the echoes. It was a musical, plaintive howling this time, not at all menacing. I thought I recognised it. I had heard howling like it once before on a visit to London Zoo. Gibbons, funky gibbons, my father had called them. I still don't know why to this day, but I love the sound of the word funky. Perhaps that was why I remember what they were. It's only gibbons, I told Stella, just funky gibbons. They won't hurt us. But I couldn't be at all sure I was right. From where I now stood, I could see that the forest grew more sparsely up the side of a great hill somewhere inland. And it occurred to me then that if I could reach the bare, rocky outcrop at the summit, I would be able to see further out to sea. Or perhaps there'd be some house or farm further inland, or maybe a road, and I could find someone to help. But if I left the beach and they came back looking for me, what then? I decided I would have to take the chance. I set off at a run, Stella Artois at my heels, and soon I found myself in the cooling shade of the forest. I discovered a narrow track going uphill in the right direction, I thought. So I followed it, only slowing to a walk when the hill became too steep. The forest was alive with creatures. Birds cackled and screeched high above me, and always the howling wailed and wafted through the trees, but more distinctly now. It wasn't the sounds of the forest that bothered me, though. It was the eyes. I felt as if I was being watched by a thousand inquisitive eyes. I think Stella did, too, for she had been strangely quiet ever since we entered the forest, constantly glancing up at me for reassurance and comfort. I did my best to give it, but she could sense that I, too, was frightened. What had seemed at first to be a short hike now felt more like a great expedition into the interior. We emerged exhausted from the trees, clambered laboriously up a rocky scree and stood at long last on the peak. The sun was blazing down. I had not really felt the burning heat of it until then. I scanned the horizon. If there was a sail somewhere out there in the haze, I could not see it. And then it came to me that even if I were to see a sail, what could I do? I couldn't light a fire. I had no matches. I knew about cavemen rubbing sticks together, but I'd never tried it. I looked all around me now. Sea, 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 nothing but sea on all sides. I was on an island. I was alone. <coughs> That's that one. Now we come back to school lavatories, which I know is the subject you all wish to return to. All all, 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 my earliest memories, I have to say, are of school, not of home. I don't know why this is, but it's, I suppose it's because I was more often at school than I was at home, because I was at a boarding school, so you were more at the school than you were at home. Many of the inspirations for my stories, the notions for my stories, have come from my earliest days, 
particularly at my first school when I went away to boarding school. Now, I don't say this because I regret it particularly. It's what happened to an awful lot of people at that age from the sort of background that I came from. I was sent away at about the age of seven to this school. I hated it for all sorts of reasons. First, it was away from my mother. I didn't like being away from my mother. It's kind of normal. And the problem is you couldn't come back at weekends. You couldn't ring up and say hello on your mobile. You couldn't text anyone. It was just 14 weeks completely away. I hated it. What used to happen was this. They used to, they used to send us letters, my mum and my stepfather, which would come about once a week, but they gave the letters out all on the same day. It was always the same day, which was a Thursday. And we'd all have to crowd into this hall, and your name would be called out, and you'd get your letters. Here was my problem. And the reason I'm telling you this is because this is how a book I wrote called The Butterfly Lion began. It's about a boy running away from school. And this particular morning I'm going to tell you about, I ran away from school. And here's why I ran away from school. I got a letter from my mother. And here was my problem. Whenever I recognized a letter from my mother, because it was in the handwriting, I knew if I opened it and read it, I would cry. Because I was homesick instantly. You could kind of hear her voice and her words. And so I thought, well, always the best thing to do is to go somewhere really quiet, silent, away from everyone. No one could see me. Open the letter. And if I cried, it wouldn't matter, because I knew really I would cry. So I went to the only silent, private place in any school, which, as you all know, is the toilet. That's why I said I was going to come back to the toilet again. The toilets in my prep school were interesting, because they were like a long row with these doors, and they had no locks on them. Don't know why. Didn't believe in privacy. So you had to sit there with your boot against the door. I opened the letter. Tears flood down. The bell rings. First lesson. So I'm doing this, doing this. Put the letter away. Ran. First lesson. English. Mr. Carter. Spelling test. You had to have learnt 20 words the night before, and then you got this test. Whoever came bottom in the test got a punishment. That particular day, I came bottom. I think I came bottom because A, I wasn't very good at spelling anyway, and B, I was upset because this letter, and I couldn't really think straight. I came bottom. And Mr. Carter hauled me out. Could you come up here, please? I'm afraid it's you. I will pay you later. What's your name? Nice to meet you, Rory. This is going to hurt, but don't worry about it. I was smaller than this, about like that, but was hauled out of the class. And this is what Mr. Carter used to do to people who had come bottom in the spelling test. They would be stood in the corner, over here in the corner, Rory. Now, you've obviously never stood in a corner before, have you? They're so deprived children these days, you know. They haven't put your head there against the wall. And what he'd do, Mr. Carter, is this. This is his particular torture. Is he put a book on your head? Now you're crying because you come bottom in the spelling test. You feel humiliated. So you're shaking and you're shaking. And what you do not want to do absolutely is for the book to fall off your head. But it falls off your head. Which is what Mr. Carter was waiting for. Mr. Carter would come along and he would pick it up. And of course, I was waiting for it and waiting for it, stiffening myself, stiffening myself. And here it came whack against the back of your head. 
your head went smack against the wall, so you're hurting on the front, you're hurting on the back. And he puts the book back on your head again. This time, of course, you're crying even more than you were crying before. And you don't want the books to fall off. And that particular morning, this is what I did. I got really, really angry and determined. And in my mind, I decided I was going to run away. But before that, I did not want this book to fall off. So what I did, I stood there stiffly, 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 like a statue. And I just remember putting my finger into a little plaster crack in the wall and concentrating all my efforts and everything on the end of my finger so that I didn't move and I didn't move and I didn't move and the book didn't fall off and then I decided you sit down Rory give him a clap for goodness sake <laughs> looking for money here Rory here it's 2p Rory <laughs> it's a pleasure this is what happened it was, it was wonderful, really. I decided to run away, but I wasn't stupid. I knew you had to run away when the teachers, the masters as we call them, couldn't see you. The best time was after lunch because we had 45 minutes to play in this park outside. So I thought, go in the middle of lunchtime, Michael. So I put my hand up in the middle of lunch, and here's what I said. I don't know if I should say this because there are small children here, but I will because it's interesting. It just shows you how things have changed. I think you're aware of this. There are two kinds of toilets. Number ones and number twos. We couldn't call them number ones and number twos because that was frivolous and you weren't allowed to be frivolous about things like that. You had to be polite about things like that. And you had to declare, I promise you, to the master before you sought permission to leave the room to go to the toilet which sort of toilet it was you wished to perform. I put my hand up and I said, please, sir, can I go to the toilet? Now, if I just said that, it would have meant I went for a wee-wee and I had to be expected back quickly. I didn't want to be expected back quickly. So I gave the code for the second kind of toilet. And I put my hand up and I said, please, sir, it's true, can I go to the toilet successful? It's true, you had to say, can I go to the toilet successful? That meant you wouldn't be expected back so soon. Please say, can I go to the toilet successful? Well, I went, and I never went to the toilet successful or otherwise. I just ran out of the front door of this school, and I can remember the front door. It was a huge, great oak thing with a sort of panel floor. Opened it, <coughs> charged down the gravel path, rhododendron bushes on either side, higher, higher, higher than I was. Down the gravel drive, it seemed a mile long, to these rusted iron gates turned left onto the road, going like a train. Here's the problem. I'm 100 miles from home, which is London, where I live. And I was going, and I knew if I got caught, I'd be beaten, because that's what happened. I said, well, get caught, well, get caught, what's the news? And I heard this car coming along behind me. <laughs> car overtook me, and it wasn't a master. Oh, thank God, it's not a master. It was this little old lady, and she wound down her window, and she said, you all right, dear? And I said, no. She said, you're from that school up the road, aren't you, dear? Because I was in the uniform. No. She said, you're running away, aren't you, dear? Yes. She said, well, where are you going, dear? I said, London. She said, oh, ridiculous. It's 100 miles away. Get in the car. Now, you know, never, 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 never get in anyone's car. Ever, ever, ever. 
This is someone like your mum or your dad that's fine sometimes. I got in the car with this lady. There's a dog in the back. It's licked my neck. And this little old lady took me to her home in the village. She rubbed my head down. I was soaking wet because it was raining. She took off my soaking wet shoes and she put them in the oven to dry. And she gave me some tea and she gave me some buns and I calmed right down. And as I calmed right down, she talked to me and she talked to me and she talked to me. In the end, what happened was this. After about 20 minutes, she said, what are we going to do with you, dear? I said, I don't know. She said, I'll ring up the headmaster. No! I said. I'll ring up your mum and dad. No! It would have been just as bad. She then thought of it and she said, all right, I'll put you back in the car, dear, and I'll drive you to the top no one will see you. You couldn't have been gone more than an hour or so. Maybe, maybe you haven't been missed. Would that be a good idea? Yeah. She took me back. I haven't got a clue who that woman was, but she saved my life. When I came to write The Butterfly Lion, I needed, needed to have a story about the First World War, about South Africa before the First World War, but I wanted the story to be told as if it's now. So I wanted it, I thought, told by this woman to this little boy running away from school. I'll just read you a tiny short piece so you don't need to leave the room, okay? I was 10 and away at boarding school in deepest Wiltshire. I was far from home and I didn't want to be. It was a diet of Latin and stew and rugby and detentions and cross-country runs and chillblains and marks and squeaky beds and semolina pudding. And then there was Basher Beaumont who terrorized and tormented me and so I lived every waking moment of my life in dread of him. I'd often thought of running away, but only once ever plucked up the courage to do it. I was homesick after a letter from my mother. Basher Beaumont had called on me in the boot room and smeared black shoe polish in my hair. I had done badly in a spelling test, and Mr. Carter had stood me in the corner with a book on my head all through the lesson, his favorite torture. I was more miserable than I'd ever been before. I picked at the plaster on the wall and determined there and then that I would run away took off the next Sunday afternoon. With any luck, I wouldn't be missed until, until supper. And by that time, I'd be home, home and free. I climbed the fence at the bottom of the school park, behind the trees where I couldn't be seen. Then I ran for it. I ran as if bloodhounds were after me, not stopping until I was through innocence breach and out onto the road beyond. I had my escape all planned. I would walk to the station, it's only five miles or so, and catch the train to London. Then I'd take the underground home. I'd just walk in and tell them that I was never ever are going back. Just a snippet, I told you. Was anyone, was anyone here in this very same theatre last night to see the, a wonderful performance of Private Peaceful? Put your hands up. Wasn't it terrific? Yeah. Wonderful, wonderful act. I just thought it was the most marvellous performance. I'm not going to talk a huge amount because I think I knew one or two people would maybe have seen enough and heard enough of Private Peaceful. But I would like just to explain the place idea behind this book. Private Peaceful is set in two places. One I knew very, very well when I was writing it. My home. I live in a little village called Iddesley in Devon. My two heroes, Charlie and Tomo, two young boys growing up in the countryside, live in this village. I didn't have to do any research at all because I've been living there 30 years. I know the society now. I also know the society how it was way back at the beginning of the 20th century. 
I know the houses, I know the lanes, I know the rivers, I know the church. This is all in my head when I come to write the first half of the story. In a way, it was simple. I also wrote another book about my place called Out of the Ashes, about foot and mouth, set in the same place. Again, no research needed. It happened outside my window. In a way, that's best because you're so intimate with the place. But here's the thing in this book, the second half of it, is set in the Western Front, in Belgium. Okay, you can say you can go there. Just go to Belgium. But of course, Belgium now isn't anything like Belgium in 1914 to 1918. If you go to Belgium now, to Ypres, has anyone here been to Ypres? Okay, those of you who haven't been, it's lovely, flat countryside, wonderful houses, <coughs> never looked as anything happened there. But of course, all that time ago, there was this dreadful war, and it would have been a scene of utter devastation. So it was a kind of combination. It was a real landscape, because I visited it now, but I had to imagine how it was then. How did I do that? Not because I'm clever. I read poems. I read other books. I looked at paintings. There's a wonderful painter called Paul Nash who painted paintings of the front line. And all that during my growing up time, I think, had soaked into my head. So when I came to write the story, I had certainly a vision of the hellish place this must have been. I'm going to read you just a short piece from it and in a way, I was reluctant to do it because Paul Checkers yesterday did it with such an amazing power. But I suppose what I can give to it is um, the voice of the person who wrote it, which is different. It's the moment at which the two brothers, Tomo and Charlie, are in the trenches. And they're waiting for an attack. And they're frightened. That's really all you need to know. There's a lieutenant who's just joined them. They have a friend called Nipper Martin and Pete. That's all you need to know. And it's just a short piece, but it'll give you an idea of how I imagine this front, the Western Front, no man's land to be. I am on stand to the next morning, locked inside my gas mask in a world of my own, listening to myself breathing. The mist rises over no man's land. I see in front of me a blasted wasteland. No vestige of fields or trees here, not a blade of grass, simply a land of mud and craters. I see unnatural humps scattered over there beyond our wire. The they are unburied, some in field gray uniforms and some in khaki. There is one lying in the wire with, with his arm stretched heavenwards, his hand pointing. He is one of ours, or was. I look up where he is pointing. There are birds up there, and they are singing. I see a beady-eyed blackbird singing to the world from his barbed wire perch. He has no tree to sing from. The pip squeak of a lieutenant says, Keep your eyes peeled, lads. Keep your wits about you. He's always doing that, always telling us to do things we're already doing. But nothing moves out there in no man's land but the crows. It is a dead man's land. We're back down in the dugout after stand two, brewing up when the bombardment starts. It doesn't stop for two whole days. They are the longest two days of my life. I cower there. We all do, each of us alone in our own private misery. We cannot talk for the din. There can be little sleep. When I do sleep, 
I see the hand pointing skywards, and it is father's hand, and I wake shaking. Nipper Martin has got the shakes too, and Pete tries to calm him, but I can't. I cry like a baby sometimes, and not even Charlie can comfort me. We want nothing more than for it to stop, for the earth to be still again, for there to be quiet. I know that when it's over, they'll be coming for us, that I'll have to be ready for them, for the gas maybe, or the flamethrower, or the grenades, or or the bayonets. But I don't mind how they come. Let them come. I just want this to stop. I want it to be over. And when it lasts, it, it does. We are ordered out on the fire step. Gas masks on, bayonets fixed, eyes straining through smoke that drifts across in front of us. Then out of the smoke, we see them coming. Their bayonets glinting, one or two at first. But then hundreds, thousands. Charlie's there beside me. You'll be all right, Tomo. He says, you'll be fine. But he knows my thoughts. He sees my terror. He knows I want to run. Just do what I do, right? And stay by me. I stay and I do not run, only because of Charlie. The firing starts all along the line. Machine guns and rifle fire. Shelling. And I'm firing too. I'm not aiming. I'm just firing, firing, (coughs) loading and firing again. And still they do not stop. For a few moments, it seems as if bullets do not touch them. They they come on towards us, unscathed, an army of invincible grey ghosts. Only when they begin to crumple and cry out and fall do I believe that they are mortal. And they are brave, too. They do not falter. No no matter how many are cut down, those that are left keep coming. I can see their their wild eyes as, as they reach our wire. It is the wire that stops them. Somehow, enough of it has survived the bombardment. Only a few of them find the gaps, and they are shot down before they ever reach our trenches. Those that are left, and there are not many now, have turned and are stumbling back, some throwing away their rifles. I feel a surge of triumph welling inside me, not because we have won, but because I have stood with the others. I have not run. You ain't a coward, are you? No, old woman. I am not. I am not. The whistle goes. I'm up with the others, and I'm after them. We pour through the gap in the wire. They lie here so thick on the ground it is hard not to step on them. I have no pity for them, but no hatred either. They came to kill us, and we killed them. I look up. They are running from us as we go forward. We fire at will now, picking them off. We are across no man's land before we know it. We find a way through their wire and leap down into their front-line trenches. I am a hunter, seeking out my quarry, a quarry I will kill. My quarry is gone. The trench is deserted. Lieutenant Buckland is up on the parapet above us, screaming at us to follow him, that we got them on the run. So I follow. We all follow. He's not so much of a pipsqueak as we all thought. Everywhere I look, to my right, to my left, as far as I can see, we are advancing. And I am part of it. And I feel suddenly exhilarated. But in front of us, the enemy seems to have vanished. I'm unsure what to do now. I look around for Charlie and cannot see him anywhere. That's when the first shell comes screaming over. I throw myself down, flatten myself into the mud as it explodes close behind me, deafening me instantly. After a while, I force myself to lift up my head and look. Ahead of me, I see us advancing still, and everywhere in front of us, the flash of rifle fire, the spitting flame of machine guns. For a moment, I think I am dead already. All is soundless, all is unreal. A silent storm of shelling rages all about me. Before my eyes, we are scythed down, blown apart, 
obliterated. I, I see men crying out, but I can hear nothing. It is as if I am not there, as if this horror cannot touch me. They are stumbling back towards me now. I, I can't see Charlie amongst them. The lieutenant grabs me and hauls me to my knee. He's shouting at me, then, then turning me and pushing me back towards our trenches. I'm trying to run with the others, trying to keep with them, but my legs are leaden and will not let me run. The lieutenant stays with me, urging me on, urging us all on. He, he's a good man. He's right there alongside me when he's hit. He drops to his knees and dies looking up at me. I see the light fade in his eyes. I watch him fall forward on his face. I do not know how I managed to get back after that, but I do. I find myself curled up in the dugout, and the dugout is half empty. Charlie is not there. He has not come back. Just two more countries, no more readings, because there'll be some questions, I think. Scotland. I wear trues from time to time. I have become almost one of you. I hate your midges, but I love your country. And I've written two books set up here, mostly because my brother bullied me into it. He lives in a place called Loch Goylehead and has become Scottish. He's more Scottish than any Scotsman I ever met, and he's born in Hertfordshire. Anyway... I wrote two books about Scotland. One is in the landscape, really, of Scotland, which he introduced me to. It's called The Silver Swan. It's a picture book. I'm not going to read it to you, but it's glowingly, glowingly illustrated by a man called Christian Birmingham. And it was very much written with a Scottish lock in mind and nowhere else. And it was really important. It could be elsewhere, but it's really important when I'm writing anyway to fix it in a landscape that I either imagine or I know. And this was a lock somewhere out towards his area of Scotland, near Loch Goylehead. And then The Last Wolf is set mostly in the Highlands. I suppose I wrote this book, I'll be honest with you, because I am a massive fan and follower of Robert Louis Stevenson. He is the person I most want to be. I've beaten him in one thing. I've lived longer. But that's it. He is, for me, the supreme writer. And I'm trying to imitate him. I've just written my first poem. I'm 60. I suppose why I am, I'm not obsessed, but I think a lot about the suffering that goes on after a war is over. And in a way, that is what keeps me interested in that subject. But it's not individual people. I haven't based Charlie or Tomo on any particular people. Big Joe, I did base on someone. And it was a remarkable coincidence. I was thinking of writing the story anyway. And I got a letter from someone, and sadly, I never kept the letter. And if you're in the audience, tell me afterwards. I got a letter from a mother who had read a book that I'd written. I think it was a book called Billy the Kid to, his, to, to her son, who was autistic. And it was the only book where he would sit down and listen. And she was writing to thank me. It was a sweet, sweet letter. And his name was Joe. And she said that one thing he did, he used to rock a lot. And when he rocked, sometimes it was out of anxiety, and sometimes it was when he was happy, but what he sang constantly was oranges and lemons. And he said he would hum oranges and lemons right the way through the story, and when they finished, he'd start singing it. And she said it would be lovely one day if you put Big Joe in a story. So I did. But that is the only character in the book who, if you like, is lifted from life, and I don't even know where that person is now because 
my filing system isn't as good as it should be. My filing system is my wife. <laughs> At the very back. What gave you the idea for cool? That stepfather I told you, who had been blind for the last 25 years of his life, he fell into a coma just before he died. And I went and sat by his bed, as you do, with relatives who are not well, who are dying. And a doctor came round one day, and I was just reading a book, and this doctor suggested that I read the book aloud because he thought that my stepfather might hear me and there was a possibility that he might wake up. I thought it was ridiculous. He said to me, look, Michael, I've been a doctor long enough to know that from time to time people do wake up from comas, and one or two of them have said to me, there was something out there that woke me up, a voice, some music, a smell, something brought them out of this deep, deep sleep. And so I thought of my stepfather died. But I thought about it afterwards and thought, well, what an awful, awful nightmare it must be to be trapped inside your own body with the people outside you who you love trying to reach you. You can hear them. You can feel them, but you cannot respond in any way at all. And how appalling that must be. That's why I wrote the story, really. And because I hate the word I want all the children in the audience to say, cool. Say it again. It's revolting. <laughs> um, in the front here. Are you going to turn any of your books into films or television programs? Um, it's sort of not up to me. I'll tell you what happens. When things become plays, or they go on to make a film or whatever. I've had about four of them made into films. Only one of them I felt was any, any good, really, a film called My Friend Walter. There's one made of Why the Whales Came, there's one made of Friend or Foe, another one made of Out of the Ashes. But I've never been as lucky, to be honest with you, as I have with this play. You have to get lucky with the people who take your book and make it into whatever. And I hope one day, you know, a great film director will come along and make a great film, because that's what you really want. I can't organize it. The reason I can't organize it is because it's up to them to choose the story to do it. It's not for me to do that. All I can do is write it. I don't, it doesn't bother me that they're not made. I, it's very exciting to me when you work with someone in theater or in film because it enables me to go out there and talk about character and plot with other people. And I, being a writer is a really lonely business. You're sitting in your little room all the time on your own. And people expect you to write pages and pages. And when sometimes you get a chance to work with other people who are creative, it's lovely. You can talk about things. You know, I love that. I'd love, actually, what I'd really love to do is to write more plays and write screenplays myself, because I do like working with people. I'm not good with working with me. I really don't like me at all when I work together. I'm very nice when I'm not working. Yes. Michael, sorry. Who, who's saying Michael? That would be me. <laughs> can we make that the last question? This one here. Yeah, please. Um, could we have? Um, you know how you were talking about um, writing poetry. Yes. Um, are you going to publish that? Yeah, of course. <laughs> it's being published this um, autumn in a collection of um, poems by other people as well. They're I tell you what it is. It's a rather wonderful poem, which is been put, a poetry book, which has been put together by a lady called Wendy Cooley, and she's gathered lots of poets and some writers, 
and we've all written about four or five poems, and mine have been illustrated by this Michael Foreman, and they're called Four Little Poems. Not poems, poems. Okay, it's not that brilliant. <laughs> it's my first four poems, all right? What'd you expect? But they'll get better. Watch this space. Heaney, Hughes. <laughs> Bless you. Thank you all for coming. Ladies and gentlemen, I hope you agree that was uh, an absolutely wonderful talk. Um, as I can see by the stream of people leaving, there, it, Michael will be signing books in the signing tent next door following this event. Um, if you could give us a couple of minutes to get there and we'll see you there. And if you could join me once more in thanking Michael for a wonderful talk.